Hello, everyone. Hi there, guys. This is Rita. This is Amanda. And you're listening to I Don't Know Her. The podcast where we talk about women you've probably never heard of, but you should have. And today you will. Well, we are in, uh, what, podcast episode number three that we're recording remotely? Yes, and Amanda, tell our listeners where you're recording from today. I am inside of my closet, surrounded (laughs) by my clothing. I can see her in her closet, by the way. Yeah, and and our our friendship reached a new level. (laughs) Truly, it has. And uh, as... Uh, Rita just witnessed me like snapping at my wife because she wanted me to move to another room. Um, And I'm not actually angry with her, although, you know, being in the house for this many days together is testing us. But what I'm really pissed about is my neighbor who never stops hammering. We've lived in this house for almost two years, and I think he's hammered something every fucking day ever, every year of this time. (laughs) And he's currently got, like, yesterday, we were out on our porch, and our neighbor's driveway had their vehicles in it. This morning, we woke up, and there was a tiny house in their driveway. What? Yeah, an actual tiny house in their driveway. Okay. Did somebody move in? (laughs) That's a weird one. Or did he build that overnight? (laughs) Uh, We were like, oh my God, is he starting his own compound? Because, fun fact, that neighbor used to be in a cult. Uh, Yep. Okay. In Stevens (laughs) County, they were in some weird religious cults where, you know, everybody has to be like Jesus's followers or whatever. Do the women look like prairie people with like the big wall of hair and the dresses down the floor? Yes, and everybody is like homeschooled and all of that jazz. So uh, he was actually, there's a podcast about the um, Bundys called Bundyville. Okay. And his grandfather or father is actually one of the featured subjects of that podcast. Like, because of how crazy they are. <laughs> no, thanks. And that's your neighbor. <laughs> well, they... To be fair, they left the cult, and they are better, uh, but the hammering is going to make me homicidal at this point. You know, that's one thing I cannot stand is is neighbor noise. You know, uh, Amanda and her wife live in a house, but I live in an apartment, and I live in a middle uh, apartment, so I have someone above me, someone next to me, and someone underneath me. I have a fucking idiot who's like, this is his first beer, apparently, in his first apartment. So he's just loud as fuck all the time. And then the people above me have two little rugrats that they have come over every single day. And they just boom, 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 like just running, running, running. And it's so annoying. And especially from being home so much now, there's like no way to get away from it. Yes, I am having I am having a lot of issues today calming down <laughs> because I can't get away from anything and I just want to go to a bar and have a beer or a drink. It'd be nice to get out and do something like that, yeah. So, yeah. hopefully, you know, folks who are out there, you're learning how to deal with the stress and the isolation and 
um, but being it being safe at the same time. Yes, I hope so too. So uh, why don't we get busy today and get down to business? I went Alrighty. first last time, I believe. All righty. So turn. it's your turn. So I have a feeling you might know who my person is today. I'm actually legitimately nervous that we are having the same person today. Uh-oh. <laughs> have you ever heard of Gladys Bentley? Oh, thank God. Uh, no, I don't know who that is. <laughs> uh, she is a highly successful Harlem Renaissance blues singer, a pianist, an entertainer, and a cross-dresser. Oh, interesting. Like, did drag? Uh, in a way, yeah. Okay. Because, like, cross-dresser... So- kind of has fallen out of favor as a term because it was often used pretty derogatorily towards people who expressed gender variance. Mm-hmm. So if I always, I always take the mindset if the person identified as a crossdresser, I'll continue to use that language. Oh, but if I they see. didn't, then I don't. Then you don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know what she dressed. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. All right. So Gladys Bentley was born on August 12th in 1907. Her mother, Mary Bentley, was from Trinidad and her father, George Bentley, was an American from Philadelphia. Uh, There are some conflicting reports that say that she was born in Philadelphia, but in an interview, she said that she was born in Trinidad, but there is proof that she was born in Philadelphia. So I feel like maybe she was kind of towing a line with her origins there. Um, Either way, she was raised in Philadelphia. Uh, She was the oldest of four siblings, and from the get-go, her childhood was extremely sad and very rough. Um, Her mother, while pregnant with her, was set on having a boy. Um, She All she talked about was that she was going to have a boy. She even bought all boy clothes. She picked a boy's name. She even said that she didn't like girls, that girls were nothing but trouble, and that she didn't want a daughter. Yikes. Yeah, she'd go out in the neighborhood and even she would go out in the street and like watch groups of boys playing and convinced herself that that's how her son was going to play, like almost trying to memorize like how they were supposed to be part of society, I guess. Weird. And so when Mary gave birth to Gladys, she was obviously extremely upset and she she refused to even touch Gladys or feed her. Oh, no. There's going to be some serious attachment problems then. Yeah. So for the first six months of Gladys's life, her mother didn't even touch her and she did not feed her once. Whoa. That's awful. Uh, Gladys's grandmother bottle fed her and took care of her. And she finally convinced Mary to finally start taking care of her baby. Um, But her mother's disdain for her just did not end there. Um, It continued as she was growing up and Mary actually blames her mother. She says that because of this disconnection right from the get go, um, it bled into how she formed relationships with other people. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with her father and her brothers. She became really terrified of men from early on. Um, She admitted that when she grew up watching her brothers, she, she grew like this very strong hate for them. She would constantly get into fights with them because she felt that they were being treated better than her, which they were. And she ended up starting to steal their clothes and wear them to school. 
And she said that this is a way that she felt that she could get even with them. Huh, that's interesting. I wonder if it wasn't just like getting even with them, but also trying to live up to her mother's ideal for her. You know, that's what I was thinking of like, if I can, if I can look and be what she wants me to be, maybe she'll love me kind of thing. Yeah, that's what it kind of feels like to me. Um, She was constantly teased and sent home over and over and over to go and put on a dress. Um, She was very much a loner and she was uninterested in forming relationships with other children in her class. She, she had no interest in having friends. Um, From a very young age, uh, she realized that she was attracted to women. Um, One of her first instances was she developed a crush on one of her female school teachers. Um, She said she would stay after recess. She would help her clean. She would, you know, clean the chalkboards. She would arrange the teacher's desk. And she said she would just stare at her and she couldn't figure out why she was attracted to her. She didn't understand her feelings at that time. So she went to her parents with these questions about her new feelings. And how do you think her parents responded? (laughs) I would imagine they disowned her. Yeah. Well, they flipped out. Her parents moved her out of that neighborhood and took her out of that school. Um, They began taking her to doctors to, as Gladys said, to fix her. Fix her. Yeah. Yeah. She became ostracized from her entire family She said that there would be like whispers in the other room and she would walk in and everyone would just get quiet. Like they Mm -hmm. literally made her feel as an outside person. Um, In an interview with Ebony Magazine, Gladys said this. There are parents who place their own selfish inclinations above the welfare of their children who recklessly break up homes and go their separate ways. Many of us who have strayed from the paths of what society calls normal were once children in unhappy or broken homes. I imagine that was like incredibly traumatic. I I would have no no faith in humanity whatsoever of these people that she, you know, she even went to her parents to seek guidance and and generally see and like truly seek for herself and they shut her down and that to me is heartbreaking well it is and it's i mean it's just a further example for her of why you can't trust people i mean she's just never going to be able to trust anybody yeah so she was overwhelmed and just confused she said she was seriously full of frustration she was very angry um it was this frustration that gladys said that she poured over her piano uh, much much of her time was spent alone with her piano, and she began writing her own music. And she actually developed quite a skill very quickly, and it was because she had all of this time by herself to play the piano. In 1923, when Gladys was 16, she said she wanted out. She ran away from home, and she ran away to New York City. Uh, when she arrived, she found the Harlem Renaissance was in high gear at the time. Yeah, uh, For money... Gladys did the one thing that she knew she could do, which was play the piano. Oh, good. I I was like real worried when you started that sentence. I was like, oh, no. Well, she started performing at house parties. Um, She started playing at rent parties, which I'm pretty sure you're you're familiar with what a rent party is. I think so. Remind me. Well, a rent party is like they used to host um, 
Oh, a, a rent party. In party. I thought you said a rat party, and I was like, oh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, the rent parties were they would invite people over to their house. You'd pay a buck to get in, yeah. and you'd stay and party, have some booze, and those people would keep the money to pay their rent. Right. Um, and a couple of small hidden clubs she was also playing there. Um, these clubs were usually in brownstones. And they offered music, alcohol, gambling, and sometimes prostitution. Um, This new environment, Gladys said that she finally felt comfortable and among people who accepted her and her sexuality. Gaining some small exposure, she landed on an audition with a Broadway agent with OK Race Records. Uh, The producer there loved her voice and what she called her torchy numbers, Torchy? Um, and, <laughs> torchy. <laughs> what does torchy mean? <laughs> I don't know. On fire? <laughs> okay. So it's like it's like 20 slang for lit. <laughs> there you go. Her lit numbers. <laughs> her music was fire. So he arranged for her to cut an eight record uh, deal. And he cut her her first professional check. And he cut her a check for $400. Which is pretty good. Wow. So, f- in it, what year is it? This is 19. Oh, if she's 20. Yeah, she was born in like 07. Yeah, so it was yeah. like 1927. So, Lucas, tell us $400 in 1927 is equal to. in 1927 is the equivalent of $5,987.03 in today's dollars. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Lucas. So she was quite happy with herself after receiving this check, but she knew that she couldn't just, she knew that she couldn't and she didn't want to settle for just one check. She didn't want to just say, oh, I made it and then end there. Yeah. Um, So she would go into bars late at night. When other musicians would get a break um, to like go have a cigarette or go have a drink, she would go up on stage and play piano and sing, and she would collect tips and try and she would try to get her name out there. Um, part of how she got her name out there was she decided to start adding sex and comedy to her performances. Well, I would go to that. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> So an author named Jim Wilson, who wrote a book about the Harlem Renaissance, uh, is quoted saying this. She would take popular songs of the day and just put the filthiest lyrics possible. She took took songs like Sweet Alice Blue Gown and Georgia Brown and combined them together. And suddenly it became a song about anal sex. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I must hear these songs. She would just get people rolling with laughter. And so I want to share a sample of Gladys's music just so you can get a taste of her styling and her voice. Uh, the song that she's singing is one of her recordings called Worried Blues. A major men folk treat us women like you do. A major men folk treat us women like you do. I don't want no man that I got to give my money to. Oh, Throw me a letter, never nothing but a no. Oh, Throw me a letter, never nothing but a no. 
Rode right back and told him, man, I ain't no Billy that's cool i liked the way she sounded (laughs) if you listen to the lyrics too she's like singing about a man and like what can he do for her and part of it was like he'll give me a diamond ring and i'll put him six feet in the ground (laughs) (laughs) oh so she could be friends with bell (laughs) gunness there you go um so I think as uh, Amanda was listening to that clip, she noticed that um, kind of Gladys's trademark was to kind of do that growl with her voice, almost mimicking like how a, a muted trumpet sounds, which is really cool that she could do that with her voice and add like her own little bit of percussion to it. Yeah, it was. And also, I recognize her from the picture that's like a still shot of her. And she's wearing like, an entire tuxedo, a white tuxedo with a top hat, little like, you know, like the, what were those called? The tails that are on the jackets? Just called uh, tails, I suppose. I, I think it's just a, it's usually, I believe the coat was called an Eaton coat in front where it's short and it kind of ends at the top of your belly button and then the tails go super long. An Eaton coat? Yeah. E-T-O-N. Oh, okay. Well, I learned a lot of new things just now. <laughs> Like the fact that Rita knows what an Eaton coat is. (laughs) (laughs) Friend fact. Uh, So people that watched her play said that she had amazing musical energy, that her voice would just boom and she would play for hours nonstop and she would just pound on the floor with her feet. Like she was just a joy to watch. Um, a couple of people have said, too, that her recordings are good, but it was nothing compared to what she looked like performing live. And obviously, she's not going to be singing about anal sex on a record. Not at this time. <laughs> <laughs> no. So as her fame took off, she started playing larger Harlem venues. She played the Cotton Club, the mm-hmm. Apollo Theater, and the iconic gay speakeasy, the Clam House. The Clam House. <laughs> Oh, good Lord, I want to go to the Clam House. (laughs) Wouldn't you love a t-shirt that said the Clam House on it? (laughs) Yes, I would. Maybe we should make some for our podcast. Oh, that would be fun. Yeah, I would totally be down with that. Maybe we'll put one of those on the Patreon. (laughs) So the Clam House was actually looking for a male performer, and the owner... Gladys convinced the owner to let her play one song. And so when she was finished, the audience burst into applause and the owner approached her with a $5 bill, paid her and said, play whatever you want. I don't care. You're fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, So this is when she started dressing in full suits at this time. And so, as you mentioned, her trademark was this all white suit um, um, consisting of a white dress shirt with like stiff collars, a bow tie white Oxford shoes, her Eaton jacket, and she had a top hat and a cane, and she actually cut her hair super short and slicked it back. And she also began performing under the name Barbara Bobby Minton, but she would just perform under the name Bobby. Her pay at the Clam House started at $35 a week plus tips, but her popularity rose so quickly she started getting $125 a week. Okay, Lucas, tell us what 125 a week. What was it, 1928 by then? Probably 1928, 1930. Yeah. yeah. Okay, tell us what that would be now. Because 100, 120, you said 120 dollars. 125. That is already like even today would be a 
pretty decent amount of month uh, amount and of money. And she's to making make. tips too. So yeah, who knows how much people are putting in that tip jar? One hundred twenty-five dollars in nineteen twenty-eight is the equivalent of $1,895.59 in today's dollars. So the club actually even renamed themselves um, called the Barbara's Exclusive Club after her stage name. She was now at this time able to rent a brand new $300 a month apartment on Park Avenue. She hired Mm -hmm. her own staff and she purchased her own car. So clearly not doing poorly for herself. No. She also kind of liked to start gossip about herself. Like she wanted people to talk about her. Mm-hmm. So she went to a gossip column herself and said that she had gotten married. And they asked her who the lucky man was. And she said, man, ugh, it's a woman. <laughs> I, that's why I do know something about her. I know I read, I think on Autostraddle, something, a little blip about her. Because I think she was like the first lesbian marriage or something like that. Or... Something close to it. Well, she claimed that it was not only legal, that, but that she had married a white woman. Um, Whoa. The woman, yeah, the, the woman's name was never revealed, nor was it confirmed that the marriage actually happened. But of course, there was a flurry of buzz about her and a lot of talk. And um, I think that's what she wanted. She wanted to be a button pusher. Well, and it's pretty clever, right? Like, you're forgotten if people aren't talking about you. So you might as well make people talk about you. Make your own page six. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So at this time, she's writing music that is also controversial. She would write songs calling out abusive men. Um, She openly sang about her sexual relationships, about money, about gambling, about drinking. And she would go through the audience and openly flirt with the women in the audience as well. (laughs) I seriously wish I could go back in time just to be in the club that she is performing in. (laughs) Um, She toured the country with this act, and she went to places such as Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hollywood. She performed for celebrities like Cesar Romero, Cary Grant, Mm -hmm. and Barbara Stanwyck. Those are big names. In 1933, she's 26 years old at this time. She tried to move her show from Harlem to Broadway, but she got complaints about her lewd performances Mm -hmm. and the fact that she featured a chorus line of eight drag queens. It led (laughs) for police to shut down her show and they locked the club doors. So she continued to play in Harlem till about 1938. Uh, The Renaissance was dying down and the club scenes were changing. Um, And Gladys uh, said she saw a deepening push back from the police and government to get back in the closet. Um, The door that had opened for her to express her sexuality was starting to close again. And she like even the the famous suits that she liked to wear, they were now requiring her to get expensive permits to even wear her suit. Isn't that absurd? The idea that you had to get a permit to be able to wear clothing of any yeah. kind who who else had to get a permit was it uh clementine yeah clementine delay the bearded woman yeah mm-hmm. she had to get a permit for, and a medical exam to wear pants yeah oh gross um and some clubs actually started refusing to let her play if she didn't put on a dress so even though her music was 
still very popular, she socially was becoming less acceptable. So she decided to pick up and move to California, where she got a gig as a lead performer at San Francisco's first lesbian bar called Mona's 440 Club. She didn't, however, have as much success as she did in Harlem. Uh, She did a little bit more touring all the way through to the 1950s. And then something strange happened. All right. And I just want you to take this in. I didn't know how I felt about this. So in 1952, Gladys signed a new recording contract with Swingtime Labels, and she wrote a controversial article for Ebony Magazine titled, I Am Woman Again. In this article, Gladys tells the story of her tragic childhood, about her risque music career, and she writes about how she found love with a man named Don. That she had never had a relationship with a man like she had with Don, So she went to a doctor, and under the direction of the doctor, she started shooting doses of hormones to cure her of her homosexuality. Yeah, Amanda's eyes just got huge. (laughs) She did this for for six months, and she really believed that she had found a solution and that she had been cured. Oh, my God. At the end of this article... She mentions her new label and her records and her relationship with Don did not last, but she got happily married to a man named JT Gibson. I Hmm. don't know how to feel about this. And so I was on um, LGBTQ nation. I, I pulled some information from an article that was on this website. And part of the theories that surround this article was that she was feeling pressure to say she was straight yeah, so she could sell records. So she could sell records. And that that childhood fear of going back to being the other was just too much for her. I think there's that possibility. There's also the possibility that no one's necessarily, like, few people are on the far ends of the Kinsey spectrum when it comes to sexuality. Few people are all the way straight. Few people are all the way gay. Mm-hmm. And so most of us reside somewhere in between those or around those. I mean, and gender also is not a constant. Gender is pretty fluid. And you can be more than one thing at once. Mm-hmm. There's also bisexuality, which is not, it's not the idea that you're one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, my When I was coming out the second time, because <laughs> I came out the first time <laughs> when I was a girl, and my mom yeah. said, nope. <laughs> yeah. And I went, oh, okay, it's just not allowed. And then in my 20s, when I was working through it again, and I was with my therapist, she likened, instead of the spectrum, like where there's a beginning and an end kind of thing, Okay. she said um, that we should think of sexuality as more of a pendulum that can potentially swing, sometimes wider swings, sometimes smaller swings. And, um, And I always thought that that was a really helpful way of looking at things because um, the really like binary idea of either gay or straight uh, not only reduces your other experiences that might not fall into those two categories, it also limits who you can love and how you can love. And humans are more complex than that. Mm-hmm. So I think that in the case of her, there's always the possibility that she was doing it sort of just to help her career. There are countless 
actors, singers, models, dancers, whatever, who have had quote unquote beards, mm-hmm. you know, people that they married to cover up their sexuality. And so that could be something that she was doing under the pressures of society, or she really could have just been like, I'm in love with this person. I feel more feminine in this time of my life. Mm-hmm. Those are all good possibilities that are valid. It so just, I, I don't, I, what I don't like is the narrative that you can fix homosexuality. That's not true. Yes. I was conflicted about sharing her story because as I was going through it, I was really compelled by the person that she was. And then to end on this note with her, I was, I was upset, but then I was like, you know what? I have the privilege to be able to be upset. She was actually this black woman living in this time who had been abused, who had, who was so lost emotionally as like how easy for me to judge her situation. I cannot. Right. And so, and I know how we said that we do like complicated women and we've been sharing that more often. If It's not always going to be this, this one direction. So I feel like she's still a notable person in history. And I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to feel about it. I'm still a little conflicted on how to feel about it. Well, I think you can accept that she may have had a wide range of experiences and and feelings and reject her notion that she was cured or fixed, Mm -hmm. which is what I will choose to walk away from (laughs) with that idea. Yeah. So by 1958, she had completed an autobiography called If This Be Sin, but it was never published. And in 1960, Gladys died suddenly from complications from the flu. She was only 52 years old. Whoa, that is young. Yeah. So despite the note that she ended on, many African-Americans and LGBTQ people honor and respect Gladys's addition to history. Um, I got a lot of good information from an article written by Terrence Heath from LGBTQNation.com titled Gender Nonconforming Blues Singer. 2019 did an overlooked obit by Giovanni Rusinello. TheRoot.com. Oh, I love The Root. I read the I read the entire 1952 article titled I Am Woman Again by Gladys Bentley herself in Ebony Magazine. Uh, the SmithsonianMagazine.com, BlackPast.org, and Wikipedia. Nice work. I liked her. her I, I liked her story as complicated as it was. Mm-hmm. I was quite taken with her music too. All right, you ready for me? Ready. I'm going to tell the story today of Ada Blackjack. I don't know her. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Ada Blackjack. What a name. She was the Inupiaq woman who came to be known as the, quote, female Robinson Crusoe. Ooh. And Robinson Crusoe, for those of you who are not well-versed, was like this adventurer, survivalist character. Ada Delatuck was born in 1898 in Spruce Creek, Alaska, outside of Nome, which was a gold rush town. And she was born to an Inupiaq woman, but for whatever reason, Ada was not raised by her mother. Instead, she was raised by two white Methodist missionaries. Hmm. She didn't didn't get very much education growing up. She was taught, obviously, conversational English because she lived with these white people. And she was taught enough reading and writing in order to study the Bible. 
Ada also knew how to cook, quote unquote, white people food. (laughs) (laughs) What is white people food? (laughs) Well, I I think that the contrast was she didn't know how to cook Inupiaq food, like traditional Uh, food. I see. So she knew how to cook white people food. (laughs) And I just like the idea of that. I, as soon as I heard white people food, I was like, oh, casseroles? <laughs> <laughs> With a loaf of white bread next to it. <laughs> Jello. <laughs> uh, but she could also sew and she was also a good housekeeper. Like that, these are the qualities they instilled in her. When she was 16, she married a man named Jack Blackjack. That's his real name. That's his real name. Jack Blackjack. That's how she became Ada Blackjack. Okay. He was a dog musher, and together they had three children. Unfortunately, two of her three children died, and her remaining child, Bennett, was terribly sick. Oh. According to Ada, Jack was abusive, and eventually he abandoned the two of them, um, Ada and her son. So Ada was alone, and they were on a deserted peninsula, the Seward Peninsula. And so she had to to leave they had to get food so she took her five-year-old son and they walked 40 miles back to Nome. oh my gosh and he's sick remember so like the entire time she's like carrying a five-year-old 40 miles alone and destitute ada couldn't afford to care for her sick son who was suffering from tuberculosis and other issues it didn't go into detail and also this is the very early 1900s, so they might not have even known what he was sick with. So she ended up having to put Bennett in an orphanage, and she said that she was going to try to come back for him, but she needed to make enough money in order to be able to care for him. Yeah. So Ada was working as a seamstress around town, but that was not bringing enough money in for her to pay for the fees to reclaim Bennett and also take care of him. So, Q. Wilhelmer Stephenson. <laughs> Wilhelmer is Icelandic for William. <laughs> oh, I gathered. <laughs> so, uh, this guy, Stephenson, he was a charismatic quote-unquote explorer. I'm going to get to that in a minute. And he was putting together a crew to travel over to Wrangell Island, which was about 100 miles off the coast of Siberia, and occupy it. Okay, let me tell you about Wilhelmer (laughs) and this Wrangell Island mission. So Stephenson was well known for his Canadian and Alaskan Arctic expeditions, wherein he did, quote, ethnological surveys, which I do not care for. That means he was like, studying the people yeah which often was very patronizing and racist and all kinds of manners of terrible yeah and his findings and i'm using that term loosely they were published all over including in national geographic in 1913 he organized an expedition that was supposed to explore the the area west of canada that had an archipelago a whole whole bunch of islands and he had commissioned three ships for this trip. And he was on the main ship. So one day, Stephenson was like, you know what? We need more food. I'm going to go hunting. And he left the ship. And while he was gone, 
the ship was carried off by moving ice in the ocean. Oh. And all of the men aboard ended up dying by one form or another. Some died on the ship. Some got stranded on Wrangell Island by chance. Yeah. And William McKinley, who we all have heard of because of Mount McKinley, which is now no longer Mount McKinley, but that guy, and he was president. <laughs> We've heard of McKinley. So he was also an explorer and he believed and said loudly and publicly that he believed that Stephenson had left the ship on purpose because he knew that it was going to be carried away by ice and oh, that wow. that those men's deaths deaths were on his hands so as i typed in my notes Stephenson's clearly a shady motherfucker yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and yet somehow Stephenson decided that in 1921 he wanted to go on another expedition this time, he wanted to claim Wrangell Island for the British. So the international law at the time, which is wild to me, said that if a land was, quote, unoccupied, it could be claimed if after a period of two years of occupation. Okay. So all you have to do is hold up for two years and then it's yours? Yes. If oh, it's fuck. unoccupied prior to you showing up. Okay. And of course... Native people, indigenous folks, do not count as occupiers. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to do this, right? He wanted to occupy Wrangell Island, and he wanted to do so for the British. However, the British had no interest in the island, and the Canadians didn't want to fund his trip. But Stephenson couldn't be swayed, so he decided instead he was going to pay for it himself. Yeah, you getting a good picture of this guy? Yeah. <sighs> Yep. Stephenson also, um, so he, he decided to put together a crew. And by this point, the experienced sort of sailors, crewmen of these, of this kind were not interested at all in being on his, on his ships. Right. Cause okay. he proved himself to be a pretty irresponsible leader. Yeah. <laughs> so when he, when it came time to pull together a crew, he ended up getting people who had no idea what they were doing. Of course. That's so shitty. So the crew that he pulled together for the Wrangell Island trip consisted of Milton Gall, who was 19. Alan Crawford. Mm -hmm, Alan Crawford, age 20. And then Lorne Knight and Fred Maurer, who were both 28. And he had told them that they needed to get an Alaska Native family to come on the ship so that when they landed, the Alaska Native family would take care of the camp and would hunt and fish for them. So they were looking for an English-speaking Inupiaq or Inupiaq people, like plural, to be able to come on the ship and go with them, right? Okay. In exchange, whoever would come of the Inupiaq people would make $50 a month. And they would also obviously get free room and board. So it was kind of a sweet deal, right? Okay. So $50 a month in 1921. Lucas, tell us what that is. $50 a month in 1921 is the equivalent of $726.43 in today's dollars. 
So $50 a month was way more than Ada could make as a local seamstress. So she decided to go with them. She spoke English. She could go. Besides, uh, they, they had said, like, if you come along, don't worry. You won't have to do any of the heavy work. That's all going to be these white guys doing it. Okay. So you just basically get to hang out and, you know, sew some things and make some food and that's it. You don't have to, you know, brave these terrible conditions. When it came time to board the ship, all of the other Inupiaq folks who'd signed up backed out saying that it was too risky. Ada considered doing the same, but her desperation to get her son Bennett back and her guilt at the idea of leaving these young men alone pulled her aboard. Oh, jeez. So it's important to note that while Ada Blackjack was an Inupiaq woman, she had been raised by white people. And she was not well-versed in any traditional ways of hunting or skinning seals or anything like that, which were things that many traditional Inupiaq had and they knew how to do. And -hmm. that's what Stephenson was intending for the crew to seek out when he told them to go out and find a Native family to come aboard the ship. In fact, Ada was basically useless in those trades. Oh, no. <laughs> she she knew how to cook and sew like any white girl would, right? Like that she just didn't know what this other stuff was. Yeah. So Stephenson, Mr. Vil, whatever his name is, <laughs> William Stephenson, while he was funding and organizing this expedition, he had no intention of actually coming aboard the ship. What? Yeah. Instead, he embarked on a lecture circuit all across the United States making fuck tons of money. Oh, my God. This guy is such a piece of shit. Oh, yeah. He certainly is. Prior to leaving, the crew was told by Stephenson that they should go buy one of the skin and wood boats from the local Inupiaqs. So these were handcrafted boats. They're really beautiful if you've never seen one but they are they're very super lightweight but they can carry a levy a heavy load and they're made from animal skins and wood and it's a very traditional technique of making the boat so when they went to go buy one they were told that it was a hundred it would be a hundred and twenty dollars for the boat and these guys were like fuck that that's too much money so instead they bought a smaller cheaper boat well you get what you pay for you sure do So this very inexperienced crew set off on September 9th, 1921 and landed on Wrangell Island just five days later on September 16th. They raised the British flag claiming the land for the Brits and then they settled in. They had six months worth of supplies that Stephenson had purchased and put on the boat. Despite the fact that the crew was relatively inexperienced, they weren't worried about anything about running out of supplies or the harsh conditions because Stephenson had assured them that the island was full of wildlife. So they would be able to hunt no matter what. I don't believe this. <laughs> I don't believe this at all. So Ada spent her time when they first arrived making hoods for the men's parkas to get them ready for winter. And while and the men were making furniture and housing for the whole team, they're making separate tents and stuff. They also brought along uh, meteorological equipment and sled dogs and hunting gear and also a cat named Vic. <laughs> oh, okay. 
<laughs> uh, Vic was short for Victoria. So there was a cat named Vic on this journey, which I thought was very funny. And in fact, there's a picture I cannot wait for you to see where it's the whole crew and the guy in the front holding the cat. <laughs> I could get down with that. So during the day, the men were tracking the wildlife on the island while Ada was back at the camp tending to the fire. And in the evenings, they would sit around and tell jokes and stories and Ada would sing folk songs and hymns. And all of them wrote in journals every day, keeping track of what they were doing, which was part of like what you did if you were on an exploration or whatever. For a while, things were okay for the crew. Um... And they appeared to get along pretty well, except for one guy. His name was Lorne Knight. He was immediately and continuously disrespectful of Ada. He would call her, quote, the woman instead of using her name. Hmm. So they were doing okay until they started to notice that the wildlife wasn't as robust as Stephenson had initially claimed it would be. In fact, in the first four months, they only managed to trap nine foxes, and they killed two bears and one seal. Yikes. Or five of them. Yeah. By the spring, they weren't even seeing any new animal tracks. However, the crew wasn't worried, because they knew that their new supply ship would be coming that summer. Or so you think. <laughs> On June 2nd, a, stum- a summer storm hit the ocean around the island and froze it, making the passage impossible for a ship. Meanwhile, Stephenson was trying to raise the money for the relief ship to come to the island and replenish the crew, but by the time he convinced the Canadian government to give him the $3,000 he would need, it was August, too oh, late geez. in the season. The ship tried to reach Wrangell Island in September, but it failed and was forced to turn back and go back to Nome. So the supply ship never showed up. Mm -hmm. So when the summer was coming to an end and there was no relief ship in sight, the crew on Wrangell Island knew that they somehow needed to make their dwindling supplies last a whole nother year. Oh, no. Wrangell, again, is Eat the cat. (laughs) Eat the cat named Vic. Eat the dogs. (laughs) Yeah. So Wrangell is an Arctic island, meaning that it's virtually impossible for trees to survive in the harsh conditions, and the crew had used up nearly all of their wood. They had used up all of the wood in a two-mile radius. This is so bad. (laughs) It's so bad. They managed to kill a couple of seals, which provided some really tough meat for them to gnaw on, but soon they were absolutely desperate for food. Every single one of them was starving. So the men decide they can't wait to go. They can't wait for it to be summer again. They've got to go get some help. And you can, from the pictures, it looks like you can actually see Siberia from the island. It's 100 miles away, so it would depend on, like, fog and whatever. Okay. But, like, you know, you can, if it's a tall mountain, you can see stuff from far away. So they decide that they're going Obviously, it's winter, so the ocean is frozen over. So there's like an ice bridge to get from the island to Siberia. Yeah. So they decide that they're going to take their very extremely weak and malnourished sled dogs and go across the ice in search of help to Siberia. But 
One of them, Lorne Knight, the asshole who kept calling Ada the woman, was extremely ill. And so they decided that he had to be left behind. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it was a cat tail. <laughs> so they left Lorne Knight behind with Ada, and she was in charge of taking care of him. Oh, that's and, a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the men set out to get them help, and they loaded up their sleds with the very what was very little left of their supplies, including kerosene. So, none of them were ever seen again. Oh my gosh! They, they didn't even have any trace of him when they went looking. Nothing. Oh my gosh! Nothing. Meanwhile, Ada was alone with Knight and a cat named Vic. Oh, God, eat the damn cat. <laughs> Ada tended to night every day, warming bags of sand and putting them on his feet to keep him from getting frostbite. And she also rotated sacks of oatmeal under him to prevent him from getting bed sores. She set out to hunt and trap to provide them with food. Again, something she'd never done before. And she was deathly, deathly afraid of polar bears and always had been. And now she was out there, like, trying to hunt, and they were also out there hunting at the same time. And despite all of this work that she was doing to care for this guy and to make sure they had food and supplies, he constantly criticized her, saying that she wasn't good enough. Hmm. She wrote this in her journal of how he treated her. Now, I want to remind you that she did not have formal education, and had sort of like a tenuous grasp on writing English. Okay. He never stop and think how much it's hard for women to take four man's place to woodwork and to hunt for something to eat for him and do waiting to his bed and take the shit out for him. <laughs> oh, because she was literally take. he was bedridden. Like he couldn't yeah. even get up to go to the bathroom. So she was, she was cleaning out a bedpan of his shit. And he was like, criticizing her sounds like he just has a deep-rooted disdain for oh her. yeah and he sounds like just a piece of shit dude yeah and despite ada's constant care for him he would throw books at her and yell at her telling her she was doing a bad job and once he even said he understood why her husband had abused her oh my god what a fucking asshole so I'm going to share one particular uh, entry in her diary about him and something that he said to her. And he mentions my children and saying, no wonder your children die. You never take good care of them. Wow. He just tear me into pieces when he mentions my children that I lost. This is the worst life I ever live in this world. Wow. He's a fucker. Yeah, he is. So Knight became more ill. He had sores breaking out all over his body. And uh, tell me if you can guess what he was sick with after I tell you this gruesome part. Ew, did he have syphilis or something? His gums loosened, his teeth fell out, and he began to bleed from his skin and from his nose. What did he have? Scurvy! Oh, jeez. So sometime during the night of June 23rd, 1923, Lauren Knight died. Ada used his typewriter to record his death, knowing that this would be needed for any future records of this expedition. 
But Ada was too weak to bury Knight, so she managed to create a barricade of boxes around his body to keep the animals away. Yeah. But the stench, even in negative 56 degree weather, was too much for her. She was, like, dying from the stent. And she was forced to move into the cook tent. But now Ada was also beginning to show signs of scurvy. Her eyes were swelling, and she was getting headaches and stomach aches. But she was determined to live, writing, I must stay alive. I will live. And the thing that she was living for, the thing that had brought her onto this ship and onto this dumb island in the first place, was her son, Bennett. Mm -hmm. So she just kept thinking about Bennett and dreaming about Bennett and thinking about what their life would be like after this. Because, again, she was going to get paid $50 a month, and they would be there for two years. So 50 times or 24, 24. is $1,200. Lucas, in 1923, what would $1,200 have gone for now? $1,200 in 1923 is the equivalent of $18,277.41 in today's dollars. So Ada did what she needed to do to survive. She learned how to set traps for foxes. She learned to shoot birds. And she even created platforms so she could watch the polar bears so she always knew where they were. And somehow she managed to make a boat, like a traditional fucking Inupiaq boat. Wow. Driftwood and canvas. After the cheap one those men bought got lost in a storm. (laughs) She even taught herself how to use the camera they'd left behind and took a few self-portraits. Wow. Can't wait to see those. She even built a gun rack that she put above her sleeping bag so that she could shoot a polar bear if it came into the camp. In fact, while hunting seal one day, she came face to face with a very hungry polar bear that was stalking her. Thankfully, it ate the seal she shot instead of her. Vic the cat was her only companion. Oh. And Ada later said that the cat was the one thing that kept her sane that she talked to Vic all to all the time, and that they would lay together at night and kept each other company. Oh, that's sweet. But the terror and isolation of the island was working on her psyche. She was terrified she'd never see Bennett again, and she decided to write up a will in the event that she died before a rescue ship showed up. So I'm going to read you the little will she wrote. It's very brief. This very important note, in case I happen to die, or somebody find out that I was dead, I want Mrs. Rita McCafferty to take care of my son, Bennett. My sister Rita is just as good as his own mother. I know she loved Bennett as much as I do. I dare not my son to have a stepmother. If I got any money coming from the boss of this company, if $1,200, give my mother, Mrs. Ototuk, $200. If it's only $600, give her $100. The rest of it for my son. Oh. I like how she put in there, if I get money from the boss, if he yeah. gives 1200 which is what he owes her, yeah, then give my mother this amount, and if it's six, give my mother this. One night, she heard what she thought might be a boat whistle. Not wanting to get her hopes up, she explained it away as the wind or a bird. But sure enough, the next day, on August 19th, 1923, a rescue ship from Nome, Alaska crested the horizon. Ada Blackjack had survived in the Arctic tundra for 703 days. Jeez. 57 of those 
she spent completely alone. I'd go crazy. (laughs) The rescue crew found a woman who looked pretty good off based on where, where she was. And she was wearing this magnificent, huge reindeer coat that she had made for herself. And the camp was in such good condition that they were all extremely impressed. Ada, however, had only this to say. I want to go back to my mother, she cried. Will you take me back to Nome? No. When they were safely back on the mainland, the tale of Ada's survival became headlines across the world, and people started calling her the female Robinson Crusoe. But she didn't like the way that, one, that they talked about this, like as if it was like some fun, crazy expedition, like an adventure. It was pretty fucking terrible. It was awful. And she only wanted two things, the money she was promised and her son, Bennett. So Stephenson, our favorite, took all of the credit and glory for Ada's miraculous survival, and he profited off of it when he (gasps) wrote a book called The Adventure of Wrangell Island, which he used her journals to write. Oh my God, this person needs to be shot. And he never gave her any of the money from that book, and he paid her less than what she was promised. This man is garbage. Fucking garbage. garbage. She did get some money. It just wasn't $1,200 like she was supposed to get. With the money she did get, she was able to get Bennett out of the orphanage, and she took him to Seattle for treatment for tuberculosis. Meanwhile, some asshole from the rescue ship decided to tarnish Ada's reputation, saying that she had neglected Lauren Knight and even going so far as to tear out pages in her journal that, like, proved that she had been taking care of him and made her look like she was a mean, terrible, and basically murderous person. Why? I don't know. He what, felt that she had done enough? I don't that. know. Okay. So later on, it was found out that he had been lying, and he was he was actually forced to apologize, but the damage was done. And while others profited from the Wrangell Island, quote, adventure, Ada never made any money from it. Jeez. Ada returned to Alaska, and she got married again. And from this marriage, they had another son named Billy. However, that marriage also didn't last, and Ada found herself just as impoverished as before. Once again, she couldn't afford to care for her sons and put them in a home for another nine years. Ada put the skills she learned on the island to use and began to profit off of her hunting and trapping, which is cool. Mm-hmm. And she was able to herd reindeer, which was a pretty great thing to do. She was able to cobble together enough money to get her sons back, and they lived a pretty meager life together in Alaska. Bennett, however, was never fully healthy. He died of a stroke in 1972 when he was only 58 years old. Wow. Ada Blackjack died in a nursing home in Alaska on May 29, 1983, at the age of 85. Her surviving son, Billy, said this of his mother. I consider my mother, Ada Blackjack, to be one of the most loving mothers in this world and one of the greatest heroines in the history of Arctic exploration. She survived against all odds. Wow. Incidentally, I'm going to tell you something that's really going to be a kicker. You ready? Okay. 
Wrangell Island had been occupied by Russia since 1916, a full five years before Ada Blackjack and the crew set out, meaning the entire expedition was for nothing. Oh, my God. <laughs> no! <laughs> yep. All for nothing. Mm. And the Russians have actually used the island at one point as a concentration camp and a, as a training camp for KGB agents. But now it currently serves mostly as a wildlife refuge and a research station. Mm. So Ada's story was pretty much lost to history for quite a few years. But in the past decade, a number of articles and a few books have unearthed what she went through. There was one really cool book that I read about called Ada Blackjack, A True Story of Survival in the Arctic by a young adult author named Jennifer Niven. That was published in 2004. And that's the story of Ada Blackjack. Wow. What a crazy story and sad, but she didn't give up. And I should note that she was tiny, like five feet tall. Oh, wow. She was really small. And to be able to like do all of the things she ended up doing in order to survive is pretty impressive. Oh, the poor thing. <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, she. there's a lot of racism happening in there that made things really terrible. Yeah. But I think she's still a testament to how strong and strong-willed women especially can be. Mm-hmm. And And there's something to be said about, like, even though she was never taught those skills, somehow deep within her, she already had them. Mm-hmm. So I used uh, four, four sources mainly. One was called Ada Blackjack, the Forgotten Soul Survivor of an Odd Arctic Expedition by Tessa Hulls for Atlas Obscura. The Inuit Woman Who Survived the Arctic Alone by Kate Cyber for Outside Magazine. There was an article by Stephanie Buck on Timeline.com. And Ada Blackjack, Forgotten Queen of Arctic Expeditions on the Oceanwide Expeditions blog. Hmm. Interesting story. Very. And I'm yeah. I'm excited to share the photos because I think they give you a real good window into the kind of conditions that they were in just based on what they're wearing. Mm. Yeah, I'm really curious. Well, that well, wraps us up for another episode. Yeah, we had some uh, complicated women today. <laughs> we sure did. And the banging finally stopped. So at least we got to tell most of our stories in quiet. Yay. Well, thank you so much for listening, guys. And I am so happy you're still hanging in there with us. Thank you to Lucas and to Jennifer Finch for our lovely theme music. Yeah, till next time. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.